I know you're seeing a lot of my ugly mug today. I apologize in advance. So if you didn't hear earlier, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're really glad to have you on a Sunday where we're starting something new. So today we begin our new study called Called Out. So you don't have to worry. I'm not going to call you out. I mean, unless you're being crazy. But for the next nine weeks, we're going to be studying the New Testament church and giving kind of an overview of what it was like historically and spiritually in the lives of those New Testament Christians. In our F260 plan, we're beginning in the book of Acts. And for the next at least nine weeks, we're going to be in Acts a little bit, and then we're going to be in another book for a minute. Then we're going to go back to Acts, and then we're going to go to another epistle for a minute. And it's going to feel like a little choppy, honestly. And you're going to go, why? yesterday I was reading Acts, why am I reading this today? So we hope that you'll see through the heart of this plan that there's a historical progression to Christianity and there's a growth that's being experienced geographically, culturally, interpersonally that hopefully you'll see the intersection of as we read Acts in little bite-sized pieces interspersed with the letters that are being written to these churches that are being established. So for the next nine weeks, we can't say this is a study in the book of Acts. We can say this is a survey of the early New Testament church because we're going to be in Acts a little bit and James and then in 1 Corinthians and then back to Acts and then Romans and you dizzy yet? We're, we're going to be a little dizzy by the end of this. So before we jump into that dizzying stuff, time for a little progress report. How many of y'all remember progress reports in school? Yeah? Were you ever like really happy about a progress report? Did you ever get like a reward, like an ice cream cone, a little personal pan, pizza, if you got all... A's or, like sometimes you don't even get A's or B's on progress reports. You get like excellent or like needs improvement or like please stay home, you know? <laughs> like, so it's time for a little progress report for our F260 reading plan. So I just thought it's nice to know where you are in the middle of a big project or in the middle of a big task because sometimes it's easy to be discouraged and to say, we are still reading that thing that we've read for like, I don't even know how long. But hear how much you've done, church. Since we've begun reading the Bible together, we've read for 38 weeks. I mean, when's the last time you did anything for 38 weeks, you know? So 38 weeks, we've been reading the scriptures consistently together, five days a week. We've read all or part of 31 books in the Bible. That's a lot. That's like almost half, right? I think. Math. I don't, I don't know math. <laughs> but I worked at a bank. How crazy is that? I don't know math. <laughs> so we've read all or part of 31 books in the Bible. And as a percentage, like if there was a nice fancy progress bar on the screen, it would say 73% complete. So if you've begun with us reading the Bible, you may have not been perfect. None of us have been perfect. I've missed days. But overall, as the group has helped us keep on track and encouraged and informed for the days that you may have missed, we're 73% of the way through reading the story of Scripture together. So kudos. Congrats to you guys. This is a big undertaking. And we're almost three quarters of the way through reading the entire Bible together. It's a really special time. And honestly, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to look back and say, that was really helpful. And I didn't even realize how much context it would give or encouragement or help me to get to know people in our D groups. I think we'll look back with nostalgia on it pretty soon. So 73% complete reading the story of scripture together. So today, as we begin a new series following the New Testament church, we're going to be drawing on some of that knowledge that we've been accumulating 
together in order to understand what's going on. So when the faith is spreading throughout these new places, we're going to see that they're drawing on the Old Testament and they're drawing on principles that they've learned in order to rightly interpret it through the life and the work of Jesus. And we're going to see how that together becomes an explosive thing. So, our main point today, if you don't get anything else, which I know that there are some Sundays when, like, you need that. Our main point is, when I'm saved by God, and I'm devoted to his work, then our church will look like the kingdom of God. You see how it kind of, like, changes person in the middle of that sentence? Like, your English teacher would, like, slap your wrist for that. But when it starts with us, when I am saved by God and choosing to be devoted to his word, then our church will look like the kingdom of God. It takes us drawing a circle around ourselves and saying, Lord, where am I? Lord, can I see the fruit of repentance in my own life? Lord, is my devotion to your word consistent and full of heart? Is your spirit showing me new things? Am I longing for more than I already have seen in the word? Am I truly devoted, Lord, or am I looking for the appearance of devotion? So when I draw the circle around myself and I say that, and we all do that together, then we're going to see fruit of the kingdom that comes out of this place, and we don't even have to try to look like the kingdom of God. It just resonates. So if you don't get anything else, that's what we're talking about today. When I'm saved by God and devoted to his work, then our church will look like the kingdom of God. So before we jump into the text today, which is Acts chapter 2, if you want to get there in your Bibles, we're going to talk about the book of Acts and we're going to kind of set the stage because there are going to be things that happen throughout the next nine weeks that will rely on having some context for the book. So I just want to take a couple minutes to set the stage on that, but not too long. So that's our first point, is setting the stage here. And I'm calling it from confused to used by God. How many of y'all can be described like that? (laughs) So the book of Acts begins with Luke indicating to the recipient of the letter that this is a continuation of his first account. Here's Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so we see that Luke is writing this. He's writing this to Theophilus. And he's saying, this is part two of me explaining this thing to you. Part one was all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now I'm showing you something else, something greater that's happening, something that's springing out of the first thing that I wrote to you. So in Acts, we see the beginning of a church that's led by the 11 original disciples and Matthias. And God uses them to do some great things in Jerusalem that ends up resonating throughout the region supernatural things. And if I had to describe the apostles in just one word, I would use the word transformed. So think about the 12 disciples in your head. Think about when you're reading the gospels and you have like this Peanuts character illustration of the disciples in your head and you have like these like hokey people that are going on misadventures and sometimes they're a bit impetuous and it's easy to make fun of them. And now all of a sudden you're seeing people in Acts that look totally different than what you've grown accustomed to in the Gospels. These people have gone from being referred to as you of little faith to emboldened believers that are delivering sermons like Peter did at Pentecost. The disciples have gone from fearful and struggling in their walk with the Lord 
to courageous preachers that spoke truth to power, as we saw a little bit in our readings this week. And they've also gone from being confused about what they believe to being confident in Christ because they understand the Old Testament. So I kind of want to emphasize that a little bit because I think that, honestly, the Holy Spirit is empowering their work, and, and that's what we see in a huge way in the book of Acts. Some people call Acts the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. So the Holy Spirit is initiating and enlivening the work of the apostles. But I think that there's a key thing going on and that they understand the Old Testament for what it really is now. And that's empowering them to be bold. And that can be us, church. We've read through the Old Testament together. And if we understand the Old Testament through the eyes of Christ, through the work and the life of Christ, then we can be empowered in the same way to preach the good news. John MacArthur says it like this about the apostles. He said, they understand the big picture. They understand that the plan of redemption that God has set in motion, all the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, after the fall of man, they see that it's working out through Jesus. We could say, yes, the resurrection emboldened them. Yes, the coming of the Spirit empowered them. But it was also this grasp of the reality of redemptive history and the understanding of the Old Testament. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they understood. And by that, I mean that they understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So skip back a couple weeks in your reading, and you'll remember in Luke chapter 24, there's a miraculous work that takes place that's kind of this linchpin that occurs. So if you have a paper Bible, an app, it's not too crazy. We're going to go back to Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to read verses 44 through 49 to you. I want you to see the moment when Jesus enlightens their understanding and helps them to preach boldly. Verse 44 says, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here's the real deal. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's a summary statement for the book of Acts right there. He's bringing it to pass. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So the 12, the 11, they finally get it. And they don't get it because they finally got smart enough. They get it because Jesus opened their minds to actually understand the Old Testament that they thought that they knew so well. Through Christ... They actually understand that Jesus is the center of gravity and that all of the details are revolving around him. So they start preaching more boldly. They start living more courageously because they actually read the Bible the right way. And that locks everything in for them. It's been so clear to them that now the Holy Spirit can use this to preach boldly. So now this brings us to Acts chapter 2 which we're going to read together here, verses 41 through 47. So that's our second point today, and this is really where we're going to hang out 
for most of our time together. The second point is called the beauty of being ordinary. So this is what the ordinary life looked like for this group of folks in Jerusalem after the preaching at Pentecost. And what's the beauty of being ordinary anyway? Does anyone even like being ordinary? I mean, in our culture, one guy right back there, he's just average and loving it. He's got a smile on his face and everything. But our culture loves the extremes. So it may sound like a truism to say that people love things that are extreme. I mean, it sounds like a law of the universe. Like, of course, you're going to love the things that are the craziest and rarest things that are out there. Can you imagine this scene? Like, close your eyes. Imagine, y'all watch the Olympics? Y'all ever, like, watch the 28 hours a day of coverage that somehow NBC does every four years? I don't understand it. So if you like curling or something, just imagine that podium at the very end. Imagine gold, silver, bronze, that whole thing. And imagine the person right at the top, eyes brimming with tears, just like family, like over the top happy for them. The American flag falling from the, or like being lowered, not falling, that'd be bad. And, and as the national anthem plays, this person is bestowed with a medal for being the most statistically average player on the field that day. Like, for real? That's not what we celebrate. We don't, like, get all the athletes and put them in a spreadsheet and then find the median and say, boom, median athlete. I'm going to get that jersey. (laughs) Our culture loves the extremes. Our culture wants to be at the top. And I don't think that the Christian culture is, is much different, honestly. I mean, I was raised in a Christian culture once I became a believer at age 14 and just, like, immediately, like, baptized into, like, youth group culture and student camp and Disciple Now weekends and all that stuff. Whenever I became a believer, the first Bible that someone ever gave me that I actually, like, really dug into and scribbled in the margins, it was called the Extreme Teen Study Bible. (laughs) I don't remember what that was about. I do remember really liking it a lot, though. And it had some study notes in it. I don't know. I guess I read them. But then I got... Um, this devotional book. And I thought, what are devotional books? Oh, you're supposed to read them every day? This one's cool. It's got like ripped up pages on the sides and it looks like it's already been read and worn. And I really dug into this book like the year after I became a believer. And it was like the first devotional book that I read all the way through. And it was called Extreme Devotion. And I was like, yes, extreme, you know? It's compiled by the Voice of the Martyrs and you have these examples of people that truly were at the extremes of the faith and that truly were were suffering and and doing incredible acts of good all around the world in the most harsh closed off places to the gospel but but you know like the effect of the cover of a book on you i thought yes extreme devotion let's be extreme you know and it's natural to be captivated by the extremes of our human experience I mean, I'm sure Dominic knew that the ISS flew over on Thursday and Friday, and it was clear that you could even see with the naked eye. You could see the International Space Station, and you know that humans get out there in their spacesuits and and do spacewalks and do maintenance on this thing, that you're just amazed that you can even see with the human eye because it's so far away. We're captivated by the fact that people hope to dive all the way to the bottom of the Marianas Trench 
and that life is completely and totally different down there in a way that somehow is more mysterious even than space. It's easy for our minds to just become enraptured by, by things that are extreme. But do you ever stop to think how beautiful and valuable ordinary things can be? So today, we get that window into the beautiful, ordinary life of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. What does ordinary look like for them? Does that mean it has to look exactly like that for us? No. But Luke found their experience to be worthy of praise. And so I think we could look at them and marvel and maybe learn a little bit from them too. So if you look inside your loops, there's actually an insert in there this week. And it says today's text. And it actually has verses 41 through 47 on there. I put that in there because I want you to kind of like mark up the text. I want you to see how this works I want you to like actually look at the text and, and be able to like underline and draw arrows and kind of like pick things apart and know the mechanics of the text. And so I knew if I said, hey, underline this, hey, put stars right here, you're probably not going to do it because, you know, writing in your Bibles are, is weird. But now you have no excuse. So there it is. So beginning in verse 41, I just want to show you patterns of the text and how we can learn from that. So here's God's word. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this is God's word for us. So let's take this out. And if you have a pen, pencil, lipstick, mascara, highlighter, dirt off of your shoe, like I just want you to like mark a few things so that you can really like become more used to like how does the Bible actually work. Sometimes I'm doing my Bible reading, full disclosure, and I'll read a whole thing and I'll go, whoa, that was one sentence? What am I supposed to get out of that? So I think sometimes it's good for us on Sunday mornings to talk a little bit about grammar and to talk a little bit about how to diagram a sentence and to talk about patterns and themes and and really like for the mechanically minded in the room, take something apart and understand the function of these words. Because if not, um, we're not gonna get what God has for us out of the text. So I just, I wanna break that down for us and kind of start a a theme or a a tradition of, of being good readers here so that we can really understand the text. So let's start at the very beginning. Verse 41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So verse 41 looks a lot like verse 47. So I want to show you that. There's kind of a set of bookends. Before we get into the the meat of the text, there's a set of bookends there that I'm kind of calling a salvation sandwich, you know, because you got to be a little cheesy sometimes. 
But you see there's salvation happening and surrounding the details of this text. You see the glory of God and the fact that he's doing this work through the people. So in italics there, verse 41, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then in verse 47, it's more explicit. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in verse 41, look at the passive voice. There were added that day. Meaning they didn't add themselves. They were added by another force there. And then in verse 47, you see the actor in an active way is God adding them to the number. God's people are primarily identified not by their own effort or their own track record or their most recent failures. It's not like our Christian life is like some factory that says like so many days since last mess up. It's not like that. God's people are primarily identified by the work of God in their own lives. And before we think of ourselves as church members, before we think of ourselves as hard workers, people of good repute, involved in the community, or anything else, we are primarily children of God, primarily saved by grace. So even in the, in the midst of, of whatever trying time you can find yourself in, that's not your identity. Your identity is son of God. Your identity is daughter of the king, saved by only his effort. And so between those statements of identity for us and beauty for us, we get the meat of the text and we get a, a window into what the early church looked like. So let's go to verse 42, which seems to me to be a summary statement of the rest of the text. So there are four things here in verse 42 that I want you to kind of underline and we're going to end up kind of drawing arrows. So it's going to looked a little messy on your, your paper if you're following along. But four things that they devoted themselves to. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And so you'll see throughout the rest of the text that there are connections that are going back up to this summary statement here. And verse 42 says that these four things the, the believers were devoted to they were seriously and earnestly persisting in these things. So let's see how Luke unpacks them. Verse 43, about the apostles' teaching. 43 says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The apostles are mentioned here, like in verse 42. But their teaching is not mentioned. Instead, their miracles are mentioned, and the fear and awe that filled the believers. But the sense of fear kind of ties back into verse 37 of chapter 2, where, where the listeners of Peter heard his sermon and cried out, what shall we do to be saved? And this expression of fear was owing to Peter's teaching, not only the miracles that God did through him. So when verse 43 says that there's an ongoing sense of fear among the believers, I wonder if we shouldn't say that this fear is owing to what they taught and the wonders and signs that they performed. So in other words, when the early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, they also had in mind the signs and wonders that they were seeing. And this is what caused the whole community to stand in awe of God's power. The teaching of the apostles wasn't anything to be trifled with. When they spoke, the apostles, God worked. 
And there was a sense of wonder and awe and fear at this reality of what they said and did. So the early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching in the context of these signs and wonders. Does that make sense? So first we see the apostles' teaching there. So we have from verse 42, the line down to verse 43. So the second part there, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That connects to both verses 44 and 45. So you can like draw an arrow to both of them in a sense. So they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Here's where we should probably like slow down a little bit and define what we mean by fellowship, right? Church culture has, has um, muddied the waters a bit whenever it comes to the word fellowship. For me, I guess I'm a little old school. And whenever I think of the word fellowship, I think of fellowship halls. Like, does anyone know what a fellowship hall is? Have you ever heard of those? Magical places, fellowship halls. Lots of crazy things go on in them. We have our members meeting in the fellowship hall of Virginia Avenue Baptist Church. Wedding receptions happen in fellowship halls. But mainly, you just eat. You just eat lots of good food in fellowship halls, right? That's what fellowship is about. That's where the kitchen is. It's in the fellowship hall. So we know, like culturally speaking, the word fellowship is tied to the industrial chicken fryer. You know, like that's what church is about. Like food, fun, fellowship. That's how we're defining the word fellowship. But Luke is saying something just a tiny bit different because he divides fellowship and breaking of bread. So fellowship can be happening around a meal. And it does a lot. But Luke wants us to look at something different whenever he says fellowship. He uses the word koinonia, which is built on a root that means common or having in common or sharing. So in verses 44 and 45, he looks at, at the sharing of the believers and says, this is what I want you to see whenever I say fellowship. So here's part of what fellowship looks like in the early church. Look at 44 again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's that common word again. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any has need. So that word for fellowship, koinonia, means having things in common. So in a moment you talk about eating together, praying together, what we usually call fellowship. But let's look at verses 44 and 45 here. He says that the believers were so bonded together that if anyone was in need, the others didn't feel like they had the right to keep living on in prosperity without giving up something to help meet the need. So these believers ended up selling possessions and using the money to meet the needs of the poor in the church. That's what Luke is saying when he says fellowship. So they didn't feel that they had the right to be holding on to things that would make them comfortable. If they saw a need that they could help meet, their hearts were so moved and the bond was so strong that, that they held loosely to their possessions. So it's really easy to read this text and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's talk about this for a minute. A lot of people have objections whenever they read this text. They'll say, now preacher, this isn't a command, right? I'm reading through this and I don't see any command sounding word. So I don't think I'm like required to do this, am I? Because the Bible didn't say, you will, yada, yada, yada. They might say, surely we still have a right to our private property, don't we? 
There's no way that this text advocates for like socialism in the church, right? I still own what I own. So the answer to both of those questions, yes, kind of. Like, I agree with you. That's, that's the answer. One, of course, this is not something that says that this is a command for the church. Two, of course, there's a right to private property in a sense. I mean, how else would thou shalt not steal even work itself out if you didn't have a right to private property? Stealing wouldn't even be able to exist, I guess, logically, if you're saying. But these two things, like a lot of other questions that can rise up when I read the scriptures, can be a convenient way to sidestep the point of the passage. And so I think the point of the passage is best put by John Piper. He says this, Oh, how easy it is to justify our lifestyles and our attachment to things by just writing off a text that might be threatening. There's no doubt in my mind that Luke recorded this fellowship because it was praiseworthy. Luke admired this sacrificial love that they had. And he was giving the well-to-do Theophilus and well-to-do Americans a lesson in the way that Christians who stand in awe of God would handle their possessions. How easy it is for me to justify my own lifestyle by just asking these other questions of the text. Every single one of us in this room stands in danger every day of being more captivated by our possessions and our position and our level of comfort than we are enthralled by the glory of God and moved to care for one another as a reflection of God's image. How firm, church, is your grip on your own comfort level this morning? How firm is it right now, and, and has it tightened over time, or can you say, by God's grace, that your grip is getting looser on your possessions? Do we hold our possessions loosely enough, and have we clung to the Lord tightly enough so that if somebody really was in need, that we'd be able to freely let go. That it would feel like nothing. That it would just feel like the natural thing to do. Because this text says it's almost as if the believers didn't own their possessions. Of course they did own them. But their hearts were moved in a way as if, of course, God owns everything. And if I can see a need in your life, I'll hold loosely enough to bless you, even if it means a bit of discomfort for me. So they had all things in common. Not as fun of a definition of fellowship as you were hoping for, right? But that's a beautiful picture that Luke puts forward there of fellowship. So third, let's see the breaking of bread. Verse 42, let's see what they're saying. The apostles teaching, the fellowship, and now the breaking of bread. So this gets unpacked in verse 46. So you can draw the arrow there. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. So here, breaking bread, some people would say it may refer to the Lord's Supper, or maybe it just refers to table fellowship. But it's clear that partaking of food with glad and generous hearts shows that togetherness was a thing that was precious to the early church. They loved to be together at meals. They actually wanted to hang out and talk. And it seems like they were together in this way almost every day, which was a really unique time, honestly, that we could unpack at a later time. But these people had come from all these different places, and then everything about their lives seems to be up upended, and they find themselves in this new, vibrant community, 
And they find themselves almost every day surrounded by these new people that, that God has bonded them with. So they love to be together. And that was the kind of love that the early Christians had for each other when they were standing in awe of God. So church, how good are you at this kind of thing? How are you doing at this? I know that my life ebbs and flows at being together with the other saints. And there's always a danger, Pastor Jacob taught us years and years ago, um, from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. It says, He who isolates himself seeks his own desire and so easily breaks out against sound judgment. So I know in my own heart and my own life that, that wisdom says, be around the brothers and sisters. You're, you don't even know when you're isolated, how quickly you're breaking out against sound judgment and against God's word. But how, how good are you right now at being with the saints? Do you enjoy it? And I know that firsthand, a lot of things can get in the way, right? One, a lot of us are, are working full time and working weird hours, swing shifts, um, which makes it difficult to meet up together. Like if you're like, boom, wide awake, ready to be with the saints, and it's like 3.15 in the morning. Sorry, I don't want to hang out. Like, but I know that, that work schedules do that to people, and, and so that's like a, a real barrier. Like, how, how does the Lord want us to be together if you're working swing shifts and you, you're, like, not even in the land of the living half the time? Like, how can God make a way for us to still be together through a challenge like that? Some of us struggle with anxiety, I, like, will raise my own hand here. Like, even if I do have the scheduled availability to be with the saints, sometimes my heart and my head just get in this space where it just gets in the way of me, um, I guess I could say wanting to be with the saints. I can get stuck in my own head. I can start thinking these things that aren't true. I can just maybe not even think stuff, but my heart will, will get racing, and, and you just don't want to be around people, so that can stand in the way. Um, how can we be asking God to make a way for more fellowship? How can we be pressing past those barriers, talking to people that we may normally not hang out with, um, and, and see God working together? How can we do just a little bit better at that with fellowship? So a word of advice, even if you're not feeling like it, Make an effort to be around your believers. And so life groups are going to be a great way to do that. They start in just a couple of weeks, and, and there's offerings currently on Sunday nights, Monday nights, and Wednesday nights. So, um, so those are opportunities that, that you could have to get plugged in. If, if you're new and you don't really know a lot of faces, um, that's, that's a good way to start getting to know folks around here. And you can talk to Jay out in the lobby afterwards if, if you want to get plugged in or, or even just know more about it. So in addition to that, how can you be welcoming people into your own life? How can you be using your home as an instrument of the gospel? How can you be using your crock pot uh, for ministry if you know how to cook? Or if you're like me, like how can you be using the dollar menu at McDonald's to hang out with people because you don't want to eat what I cook? Or if you're like my brother Jeff back there, how can you like go get a bucket of chicken from KFC and like start building bonds with people? Um, how can we welcome each other in? That's, that's the point there. So the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and finally the prayers. 
So we see here, they were devoted to prayer. Verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. So when the believers got together in, in big groups in the temple, and then they ate together in their homes, Luke says they focused on God, and they praised God. So this maybe could be left unsaid, but um, these were not the kind of church you get together. It's where you can be together for like three hours and talk about everything else under the sun except for God, and then go home and say, well, I hung out with my church friends. They said that when people actually spent time together, it was like they were meeting God. They were really talking about the word together. They were really concerned for one another. They really did share um, their needs and their lives together. They brought each other before the Lord. Not in, not in some awkward way, but in a way that was intentionally spiritual, if that makes any sense. So they devoted themselves to that. So let's recap. What is ordinary for the early church? One, they focused a lot on the teaching of the apostles. We say it like this, the word matters here. They shared their possessions as freely with the needy, as though they didn't even own them. They ate together in their homes almost every day. And when they met each other, it was like they were meeting God, praying, praising, really overflowing with how God works in them. So we've seen two things. We've seen the context for the book of Acts. We've seen the beauty of being ordinary. And so as we kind of land the plane here, I want you to see the hinge. So if we're talking about how these, these texts work together, how the summary statements and the bookends and all of that, how does all of this actually work? Like what's the fuel in the car? Like if we just took everything in the car apart, which I'm not even gonna like try to name a car apart because I'm not that person. Like, and you put it all back together and you understand how it works. What's the gas in the tank that's getting you toward these things that we're talking today? Because it's easy to say, yep, check, check, check. I know all of these things. I sure should be doing all these things. But I kind of don't have the motivation to. Where does the actual fuel come from to get there? Because I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. What do we look to to actually have the motivation? So let's look at verse 43. Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So I think that's the key at the very beginning. Awe came upon every soul. The awe of God is the gas in the tank toward obedience. And if we're looking to obey without that, then we're going to fall flat, and we're going to pull off on the side of the road out of gas and, and be short of obedience. But when we look toward the Lord and we really are moved by his holiness and his power, when we really are adoring God for who he is and praising him for what he's done, then the other things are naturally flowing from there. But for many of us, for myself included, our experience is a little bit far away from awe coming upon every soul. And even this week, I can find myself not lining up with that description. A pastor says it this way, Today for most people, including most professing Christians, God is just an idea to talk about, or an inference from an argument, or a family tradition to be preserved. But for very few people, God is still a stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, and shocking present reality. 
For so many people, he's tame, distant, silent. And where are the churches of whom Luke could say today that fear, awe, wonder, and trembling is upon every soul? I think it can be evident from my own life that that sometimes I'm not lining up. And when we're not looking at God through a lens of wonder and awe, then it's really easy to see it in the way that we can accumulate possessions for ourselves, in the way that we can ignore the needy, and in a way that we can trivialize fellowship sometimes, and sometimes just end up in a life that plays way more than praise. So this is another reason why we just have to say, spirit move, spirit help. We're not there yet. We can't do this on our own. God, make this a place where awe and fear and wonder come, comes upon us, where we truly do love the Lord. If the word of God would stand out to us in the way that it did with Peter at Pentecost, then our church would look totally different. Our possessions wouldn't be our identity. Our possessions would be a, ter- a tool to serve others. And people, not things, would become precious. When we met up with each other in the awe of God, our meetings would look totally different. We would be encouraging and praying with and praising the Lord together. We wouldn't just have sweet friendships. We'd have reflections of God that are contagious. And without the Spirit, that's not going to happen. And so I, I hope it's your prayer, just like it's my prayer, that, that God would help us to see this and to savor this and to ask for more in our church. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this picture that you've given us so graciously of how the local church praised you. God, we thank you that you can give us glimpses into our own hearts and lives and that sometimes we can realize that we really do need you and without you, we're just gonna miss the mark, Lord. So God, open up our hearts and our eyes as we read the word. Help us to be inspired by the truth of you. Help us to be motivated to hold our possessions loosely, to hold our relationships with the brothers and sisters even more tightly. And God, we'll give you the praise when it happens because we know it won't come from us. We love you, Lord.